0: Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This episode of Red Inca, we look at the difficulties faced by Indian women's cricketers. And luckily for me, there is a book called The Fireburns Blue all about this topic, and so I got one of the authors to come on and chat to me.
1: I'm Karunia I'm a freelance journalist in India. I work in digital media, so I guess you could call me a digital social media consultant.
0: We discussed players choosing marriage over a career, players choosing a career over marriage, and the few who have tried both. This is a story about women cricketers in India, but also the things they have to overcome. Societal pressures, miscarriages, working mother schedules, and so many other issues associated with being a woman athlete in India today. There are actually two authors of this book. It was co-authored by Sid Pat Patnayuk. Sadly, Sid passed away in 2019. Now, on this podcast, and I suppose in cricket in general, we talk a lot about young cricketers cut down by injuries or even, sadly, by passing and what they could have been. Well, Sid was a young rider cut down just as he was approaching his prime. He had an incredible knowledge of cricket, especially the women's game, and I'm pretty sure he would have gone on to be an incredible storyteller in this game for decades to come. When Sid passed that incredible brain went with him. As a global cricket writer, I often end up in random press boxes and parts of the sport that I'm not an expert in. So for me, seeking out the local knowledge or a specialist person is always an important part of my job. Of all those specialists and local experts that I've tapped up over the years, few have ever been anywhere near Sid's level of knowledge, passion, and intelligence. The combination of all three with him truly made him something special for cricket. His passing was a loss to the game, And I know that the next time I'm in a press box for a women's match that I'll miss him as much as the game does. Thanks for everything, Sue. I've got you on to talk about your book, The Fire Burns Blue, but there's a specific chapter that we're going to talk about that I really, really enjoyed. um, And we're going to dive deep into that. Uh, the former Indian player, Pramila Korakar, now Pramila Bhatt, was an off-spinner and played an incredible role in Indian women's cricket. Can you just quickly take me through why she was great and what her impact on Indian women's cricket was?
1: So Pramila Bhatt is a name you hear if you're familiar with women's cricket, if you just heard about women's cricket now. She's probably not a name you hear because she left India a while ago. So you hear someone like Rangaswamy. you hear about a Dinah Adulji, you hear about a Shibangi Kulkarni, who are still having those arguments with the BCCI, still holding the flag a lot for women's cricket. Tamila Bhatt isn't that person. So she left cricket as we know it a few years ago. But at one point she was the captain. She led India to World Cup. You talk to a lot of the old players, they will talk about her as a really stylish batter, fearless, almost like a poster girl. She was one of the few people who worked for Air India as well. So and Air India just chose the best of the lot at that point in time. At a certain period of time, she was the top cricketer. And then she sort of just got lost from stories. And that was because she got married and she moved away.
0: She also had a bit of an impact on Mathali Raj, who obviously has gone on to be, you know, just great.
1: <laughs> yeah, actually, a lot of players that we spoke to mentioned. Her as someone whose advice they got early on in their career, and that's you know that they held on to. So, there was obviously Mithali Raj, who, when she just started in the railway, she had someone like Pramila Bhatt to sort of look up to. We have Nushin Al Khadir, who is someone who has uh, 100 wickets for India, and she still speaks about how Pramila Bhatt, a senior that she didn't really know back then, you know, still came up to her and said, You know, you should have a plan after cricket, You it, it, you play by your rules and you leave when you want to leave, not because you're pushed out.
0: So Pramila then at that point, she's this huge figure in Indian women's cricket. And as you said, she sort of has disappeared. And even when we talk about the history of women's cricket, she doesn't get maybe mentioned as much as, you know, some of the other greats who came before the popularity. Why specifically did she retire from cricket? And was she young enough to have continued to play?
1: What she told us is that she left cricket because uh, she got married and she was having a child. She did play for a little while after marriage. just But she said she knew that once she had a child, uh, once she was getting ready to start a family, that was it because she wanted, you know, at that point, and I think even now for a lot of female players, it's either family or cricket. And it's a choice that they're very clear with. And Pramila was one of those people. She did say that, I think when it was playing a domestic game, she did suffer a miscarriage as well. And there were times when she did play through all of this. But when the time came to make a choice between family and cricket, she chose family.
0: And one of the lines, and I can't remember who you quoted in, in the book here, but one of the lines you said was, like, look at Mathali Raj today, and I think it was Pramila who got her like first bat sponsor or her first glove sponsor, but look at Mathali Raj today. Imagine if she had to give up the game at 25 when she was at her peak. It seems like there are a, a lot of stories of, what would you call them, lost greats of Indian women cricket who played very well up until the age of 21, 22, 23, 24. They either get married or they get married and they get pregnant and they just disappeared. Am I reading that correctly from this chapter?
1: Yes, that is the theory we would come up with. So I think there are two kinds of players. We don't have the numbers. Like a lot of things in Indian women's cricket or Indian cricket in general, we really don't have the stats to 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 make these assertions. But the anecdotal evidence is that There is a lot of dropout around the age of 25, A, when the women realize that cricket is not a sustainable career, they haven't made it to the national team, Mm. they're not going to get any money. And at that point, you have to start thinking about how to support yourself. That happens on one side. On the other side, there is around that time that most Indian girls feel the pressure or feel the inclination to get married and to have a family. And again, there's nothing in Indian women's cricket right now that supports the option to be married and have a career playing sport. So yeah, so anecdotally, there are a lot of women that the sport loses at that age. Of course, you do have someone like Natalie Julan who sort of, you know, power through that period and we do have a lot of women who are involved in the sport at a later age but there's almost this dip that you can see so you have a lot of really young girls and then you have a lot of 30 plus women most of them unmarried there are of course a few who are married but most of them are unmarried who are still doing really well in their career and who are proud of that fact and um, I mean I think both sides make it work. Mm. Another fallout of this is how much they're involved in after they're playing careers. So it's not just about the lack of support when these women are playing, but also, say, for example, after, you know, after your kids, uh, say, two or three, when you want to come back into work and do what you know best, which is play cricket, which is talk about cricket, which is work in cricket, those avenues aren't there either. And I think that is another bigger problem because we're losing so much experience, not just on the field, but also outside of it, where at a time when you want more women in administration, you want more coaches, you want more physios and trainers, that isn't happening either. So I think we're losing out on both aspects.
0: So, you're getting a player drain, then you're getting a brain drain like on the back of it. So, it's almost the worst of both worlds, there, isn't it? It's interesting, you know, putting my historian's hat on. I don't have a historian's hat. I don't know what a historian's hat would look like, but, you know, putting my hat on for that side of things. The original Ashes Tour in women's cricket was played by single ladies for a reason. All the single ladies. I don't know if it was that, you know, the original Beyonce track, I think. That started to die out probably when women's cricket became a little bit more professional through the mid-2000s in Australia and England and New Zealand. We're talking about two completely different cultures. You know, I had Mark Coles on once, and, you know, he's someone who had coached in women's cricket in New Zealand, and then he coached women's cricket in Pakistan, and he was explaining it as two different separate worlds. that They're both women playing cricket, but they come from different aspects. One thing that I read in your piece, and it's it shouldn't be shocking to me, but I suppose I hadn't really thought about it. The median age for marriage in the 2011 census for India was 21.2 years. That means that whether it's societal pressure or women just wanting to get married, there is a real sort of push towards that in Indian society. And once you do that, I assume that that affects where women can go professionally, whether it be in cricket or in any job in some cases.
1: When we talk about sport in India, I think one of the biggest things that keeps coming up over and over again is the social barriers. And the physical infrastructural barriers that exist, the financial barriers, all of that sort of stems from this because um, there are so many spaces where you don't expect women to be. So you just don't have the system set up for it. I think another thing we spoke about in that same chapter was the amount of unpaid labor that happens by Indian women. I think uh, the difference in unpaid Hours worked in a household by a woman versus a man is one of the highest. I mean, the, the discrepancy is one of the highest in the world. In uh, when it comes to India, so it's not like Indian women don't work. Mm after marriage they do it's just a lot of it is unpaid and a lot of it is unacknowledged as well because they're working say maybe in family businesses or well agriculture is a big thing so I guess a lot of these numbers are affected by the huge population doing agriculture which is almost not measured Mm. if I can say so
0: Essentially, we have seen an entire movie based on this. Bend It Like Beckham is about that sort of thing, the societal pressure of coming from that Asian background. And another thing that you bring up in this chapter is that Indian women and Indian girls are not treated as well as Indian men. And that's obviously a problem kind of all around the world, but there are specific things in India, like young girls not getting as much food as their brothers and their their father. There's a certain point where you're not even breeding the correct kind of athletes if you're not allowing them to eat and you're not putting them in that situation. And if this is a societal thing, and cricket is seen specifically as a male world, you can see that It's almost like there would be more pressure to not have women involved in cricket. And I would assume, and and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would assume that there are a lot of pressures from families to say that cricket is not for women.
1: We did a survey recently with about 350 female players. By we, I mean Sneha Pradhan, who I think you've had on your show at some point, the Sports Law and Policy Centre in Bangalore and myself. It was um, an unofficial survey so where we just sent out this questionnaire to a bunch of domestic players. And we found that a huge majority of them had someone around them, uh, maybe not the immediate family, but around them say cricket isn't a sport for them. What we have also found, which is probably maybe a bit of a paradox, is that female cricketers who do well in India, who come up and who are playing at any level in India, they have, for the most part, incredible family support. So the family may also say, get a bit of education, you know, just have something to fall back on. But for the most part, there is incredible family support. But that brings us to the question, how many are we losing again? Because they just never come up to this place. So recently, during the pandemic, I think there was another study which said most girls didn't even go to school or didn't get food compared to their brothers. Simply because, you know, when there is a resource crunch, the girls lose out instead of the boys. So now these are girls that are probably never going to even get to sport. They're never going to get to cricket So there is that paradox where the ones who come in do have a lot of family support and their families take on a lot of this other social pressure that they feel. So there are a lot of really young girls who say, you know, maybe there were people who did say things that cricket is not for for girls. Why are you letting your girl play with boys? Why are you letting her wear pants and run around? Why are you letting her go out in the sun? She's just going to become dark, which is a massive issue for most people in India, I guess. And their families, because of how supportive they are, they've sort of blocked these girls from those sort of sentiments. But at some point, I think it does come up. And these are things that the girls also ultimately do feel And even though there is no active fight, like they don't feel like they're actively fighting these forces of society the whole time, it is there at some level.
0: Yeah, whether they're actually going up you know, in big arguments against their family, the actual societal pressure is weighing down on them, isn't it? You know, there's a couple of incredible stories here. One is that Andra Kalpana, who obviously went on to be quite a good cricketer, she said her biggest success in cricket wasn't representing India, it was getting her parents to pull her out of an arranged marriage, I think, when she was 17 years old. I mean, that's an incredible story, isn't it?
1: So this chapter that you're talking about, we started off with probably the question saying, why are so many women we speak to in Indian women's cricket unmarried? And then we realized that was probably not the best approach for this question, because maybe they're just more visible. Maybe the unmarried women are just more visible, but there have been all kinds. And on the other hand, there was this incredible feeling of independence. So the fact that they were unmarried to a lot of these women was a measure of their success. If the option was to join another family, take your husband's name, not get to travel, not get to wear what you want, which is the case in many families once you get married. The fact that they got to escape all of that and just play cricket, which was associated with a sense of freedom, with a sense of independence, and which gave them their identity, that was considered a big mark of success for a lot of these women, including someone like Kalpana, who, because her family, I think, wasn't that well off, marriage was seen as the best way for this girl to have something to support her. But because there were some systems in place in Andhra where she got into the cricket system and she got a job with the railways, which again is a massive thing for a lot of these girls, getting a job via cricket, she considers herself a success now. And I think the way we define success or what we want in life A lot of these women are sort of redefining it.
0: One question I had in my head as I was reading this book was that I grew up in a culture where women played cricket in Melbourne. I, I was just very lucky that at my local club, we didn't have a women's team when I first started playing, but there was a lot of women who were involved in cricket in our club who, who did play for clubs around us. And then the next club I moved to had a women's team. Then we had a girls' team. So for me, it's a very normal thing. But the other thing that is very normal is that quite a few of the women that I have grown up with that have played cricket have been lesbians. So one thing that I wondered reading this is how many of the single ladies perhaps that you're writing about here are perhaps lesbians who are not out for other societal reasons? Or is this, it's just, that's not a thing because, you know, you only have to look at women's basketball, women's football, women's tennis, women's cricket outside of Asia. And it's very, very made up, a much higher percentage than you would find in probably in other parts of society or other professions, I should say. So is that something or is that something you touched on in another chapter in the book at all?
1: This is something we didn't get into at all in our book for a number of reasons. I think the conversations about same-sex relationships just isn't at the same place in India as it is you know, in Australia, where there's so many conversations that are happening, supported by the board in England to, to an extent. That just isn't happening in India. I think the acceptance of female sportspersons itself is so nascent, in India, just to have some of these girls come out and say, okay, I'm in a same sex relationship with someone that just won't happen immediately. I'd love to be able to see that day because I'm sure there are these stories and it's not something we wanted to get into in the book because Mm. the book was almost a starting point to a much larger conversation about women's cricket. So hopefully when someone writes another book in a few years, there will be more about this. There's you know, there loads of things that we honestly didn't get too much into detail with. We, I think, just spent a couple of pages on even the whole um, element of sexual harassment that happens with female sportsperson. And I'm sure there's a much bigger discussion to be had in that. But these are just not conversations that people are comfortable coming out with yet. And so I guess we'll just have to wait.
0: (laughs) No, I mean, the whole sexual harassment thing is fundamentally very, very interesting as well. There's been cases out of Pakistan and Sri Lanka over the last couple of years that are horrifying. And I think that's a real problem as well. So it's very interesting. And, And talking about terrible things... Poonam Routes comments in this. It's one of the most incredible cricket quotes I've ever seen here. She says, Thoughts of suicide crossed my mind. I didn't know what to do. I had even decided that I would stop playing cricket. That is the most cricket comment. I have ever heard a person say, because she's basically saying, I thought about killing myself. But what was even worse was I thought about stop playing cricket, which tells you the kind of pressure that she must have been under. Now, that was about her going on to be married and have a family and everything, wasn't it? That was the pressure that she was feeling at that time.
1: Yeah. So when we spoke to Poonam, we also spoke to her father. And I think one of the first things he told us was that I couldn't reason with this girl. She just wanted to play cricket all the time. That was always on her mind. So who am I to stop her? And that's just an incredible sense of support coming from a parent. So I think he used to work as a driver, if I'm not mistaken. So he got support from some people who employed him and from some other sources. And now Poonam is the one supporting her family. She's, you know, bought them a house. So again, there's a story of a girl who broke the stereotypes of what a normal life path is for a woman in India and is totally supporting her family who supported her at one point. What came up with Poonam and what came up with a lot of other women that we may not have really quoted is that once you're married, there's this sense of compromise that comes in. Or once you're in a relationship, there's a sense of compromise that comes in. So, you know, you don't have the time you need to you know to, to go train in the morning when every you know when your coach is free you're not free at that time because you know you have a house to run mm. and i mean i think these are problems that women across the years have had to deal with but just there is this contradiction when cricket is growing more and more professional in the sense of the time that you have to put into it against these other demands on your time, which uh, I don't think we fully have solutions for in the system in terms of whether contracts or um, child care support or just various other flexibilities that you can have to enable women to play more cricket.
0: Well, the Poonam story is very interesting for me. It crosses over, I think, quite a bit. So she is obviously, I think she's played over a hundred games for India now. She averages probably mid thirties, I would say in one day cricket, but she's also a quite tiny player. Like, you know, she's not as physically strong as some of the other, you'd almost say some of the newer breed of the women that are coming through, you know, the sort of ridiculous athletes that we have coming through the game. But because she had the ability to professionalize herself, and put all of her effort into the game, she managed to actually carve out a career even as the other women came through and started to take it over. And I remember talking to the Melbourne Stars batting coach. This must have been back in 2017, I think. And I was saying, tell me why women are hitting more sixes. Other than the fact they're trying to hit more sixes, which is fine, why are they hitting more sixes? And he said, so in in the old days, you know, and he was talking about, you know, an Australian women's cricketer, she would work from nine to five probably in an office job. And then she would go to training for two hours. And then by then at seven or eight, she probably hasn't had a proper dinner. There wasn't probably food given to her with a proper dietitian or anyone looking after her. And then after all that, I had to decide if she wanted to hit the gym as well. And probably two or three nights of the week, she would hit a gym. And he said, once you bring professionalism in, it's like, She's eating the right food at the right time. She's now got people looking after her core strength as well as her, you know, muscular strength. Uh, she can hit the gym whenever she wants to. She can do range cheating and all those sorts of things. And Poonam's story is very similar to that, isn't it? She kind of built this up herself. She almost had to make the commitment herself to be a professional before there was a professional system backing her up, didn't she?
1: Definitely. So, uh, Poonam hit 100 in the last game India played and she spoke about how she spent this whole last year during lockdown when the Indian women played no cricket. She spent that time with her coach addressing some of those issues that have maybe held her back, seen her in and out of the team. Uh, She's worked on a strike rate and um, Poonam is from Bombay. So while she has that typical Bombay story of, you know, lugging her back onto the trains and getting to practice. I think every Mumbai cricketer has that story. So she has that, but she also has that support system in Mumbai of some really dedicated coaches who, to their credit, haven't made that difference between men and women, boys and girls, and who've identified her talent early on and have backed her through the years. Given her the occasion to work with the boys as well, because I think one of the really significant ways of supporting female cricketers in India seems to be practice with the boys. So just giving them those opportunities at the nets, uh, at the training sessions to, to face that sort of higher standard which you won't get while playing just with girls. She's had that. And you're completely right. It's it's all totally on her. I think she's probably been one of the cricketers who have A, benefited from a job at the railways and also B, benefited from these contracts that have come in because she has been in and out of the country's been going up and down. But she has benefited from this money when she was part of the 2017 World Cup side. So with that bonus that they got at that point, that's what she used to put the down payment on our house, which is life-changing to support her cricket career and her family.
0: And that's one of the great things, isn't it? That you now have a woman, and I think she's about, what, 30, 31. You now have a woman who can support her family by playing cricket, which is such a flip of, I remember Zoe Goss, who, I'm pretty sure it was Zoe Goss, who was probably the most famous women's cricketer in Australia in the 90s, talking about the fact that she basically, the money that she would have spent on, you know, paying her mortgage and everything went towards paying to play essentially. And the original women had to literally pay to play over and over again. So it's incredible to come this far. There's a great story with Neha Tanwa, who is not as well-known a cricketer. She's more a domestic cricketer, although she has played for India a little bit. I'm going to just quickly try and paraphrase her schedule, which is horrendous. And there's a lot of women in the world that have this schedule. It just happens to be that she's trying to be an elite athlete while doing it. She wakes up at 4.30 in the morning and she has to make breakfast and lunch for her family. She then has to get her child ready for the day. So she lives in Delhi. So I'm going to assume that it's a horrendous commute just because I've been to Delhi. She gets to work at 9.30 in the morning and she works until 1.30. So she only has to work half a day because she has a deal with her work for cricket. You know, that's part of her job, which is fine. She then trains all afternoon. Again, she's doing that in Delhi. So she's probably struggling to breathe for good periods of time while doing that. She gets home at 8:30 plays with her child for a while and then she goes to bed at midnight and is back up by 4:30 a.m the next day that's what she has to do in order to be a top level cricketer it is a phenomenal thing isn't it
1: and she says she's one of the lucky ones <laughs> she says she's lucky to get the kind of support that she does from her employer and from her family and i think neha is a brilliant story cuz she does commentary now as well. I think during the IPL, she was doing some expert analysis for a few news channels in India as well. She's playing the domestic matches that are going on right now. Her son is a little more grown up, but she, maybe unlike Poonam, had almost no support through her pregnancy and when she was trying to get back into the sport. So she speaks about how at one point she knew that was the end of her cricket career because she was planning a family. but then. Obviously, this desire to keep playing cricket was something that really drove her. And because of the support of her family, she was able to get back into the system. But in that time, she had no help. She, I think, because of some complications, she put on a lot of weight at that point in time. She didn't have a gym facility to to lose that weight or or something. Um, I I forget what the details are right now, but I think it was locked when she was free to go to the gym, that at that point the gym was locked. So, you know, there was this big drama about having to try to get it to open just so she could practice at that point in time. She didn't have access to any physios who could guide her at this really crucial time in regaining all this, you know, this core strength that we were talking about. So at the same time, what blows my mind is that she considers herself really lucky. And I guess that's just inspiring in a way, just to see how people just make it work.
0: I think one thing that is quite clear from reading this chapter is, and I think this is the case for anyone who represents India on almost any sport, but certainly in cricket, is that you have to overcome the system in a certain way. I know there are going to be luckier cricketers who, you know, have family connections or money connections. And that's one thing I've noticed in women's cricket is being from a middle class or above family historically has always been a huge advantage just because, you know, it gives you a freedom and flexibility. That isn't the case in other sides of sport, but, you know, in men's cricket, because there was money involved, you would play to get the money. Whereas women played knowing that there would be no money, I suppose is what I'm going to say there. But, there is this sort of thing of overcoming the system and these women probably being tougher and being more adept at that. But at the same time, as you said, we just don't know how many incredible tough women that we have missed out on in India. And we're talking about India here, but this story could be about Pakistan women or Sri Lankan women or Nepalese women. The Afghanistani women still don't have a a side. They get special dispensation from the ICC not to have a side, which I don't know how much longer they'll be able to get away with that one. But They all have these incredible stories, don't they? And they're incredible women. But we just wish that there was more option for more of these women to come through.
1: Yeah, I think what we see at the Indian team is that there are all kinds, at least at the elite level and one level below them. You do have a lot of people who are supporting their own careers in cricket, their own journeys in cricket, or depending on their families to do so. But there are also a lot of others who are in the sport because it's, in a sense, it offers them financial security because of the jobs they can get. Specifically, right now with the railways in it, so you have people even in the national team like Ekta uh Radha Yadav. We were talking about Poonam a while ago. Radha Yadav, who's from the same city, she's twenty and she's supporting a family. So you know that age at which you're able to support your family, and and many examples bringing them out of poverty even. My point is that a lot of women who get into the sport, who get into cricket in India just for that job. So, you know, we have heard parents saying, I was more happy when she got that railway's job than she made it to the Indian (laughs) women's team. Um, Simply because, you know, with the national team, you may be in one year, out the next, the contracts may come in and go. But with a railway's job, you're sort of literally set for life. You can potentially retire there, and you get all the perks of a government job, and there is that security which isn't there in most other careers for women in India, and especially not in sport. Yeah, so I think that it's a both that happen in India at least.
0: Quite early on, you mentioned that Pramila Bhatt had a miscarriage, and. There wasn't a, we're talking about in the nineties, I assume, when she was still playing, there wasn't a support system around her there. And, you know, my wife has had two miscarriages. So I know the sort of, you know, emotional problems that you can have in that time, but also know the physical problems that you can have. And if you're an elite athlete, that must be, you know, even tougher for you. She sort of talked about being lost to the game a little bit and still wanting to be involved. A lot of the women who who grew up through that, let's say the 80s, 90s and early 2000s periods, they wouldn't all have had miscarriages, but they would have had problems with family members. They would have had societal pressure. Some of them would have got married and then been divorced, all those sorts of things. You talked about that player brain drain before. One of the biggest problems is that, you need women who have gone through this and who will understand exactly what a female athlete needs to be able to build that up for the next thing. And it's great to have, you know, the young girls playing against the young boys to develop their cricket and all that sort of stuff. But what you really need is professional women from the age of, let's say, 15 through to 70, administrating the game, coaching the game, commentating on the game, physios, trainers and all that sort of thing. That's what the big boom needs to be, I would assume. Is, is that what you sort of came to from this?
1: Definitely. So I think even when speaking about Poonam and Neha, I don't think anyone's actually asked them to go and talk to their teammates about what they've been through. A mental coach is something that has been maybe a requirement, has been a demand by many in the system for a while now. And it's just not available in Indian cricket, especially Indian women's cricket. I think it's also about creating those spaces in administration where you can make these women feel welcome, creating spaces in the cricket ecosystem itself. So I think it's also part of a larger issue where Indian cricketers don't always have anyone to speak for them. And I think this is something that's come up very often. The ones who are doing well are doing really well, but what happens to the rest of them? And when I say rest of them, it's probably mostly junior cricketers. Domestic cricketers have sort of had some issues with their state associations and definitely the women. So in this system where you don't have anyone to speak for you, a lot of the voices just never get heard. So I think the big problem of the brain drain is that the support system that can exist for current cricketers just isn't there. There is also no acknowledgement of the work that has happened before. So I'm guessing most cricketers right now who are just coming up now won't know Pramila's story. It's just that acknowledgement that we are here because of those who have come before us doesn't always exist. And I think that also needs some systemic work. Maybe the BCCI or the state associations that need to come together to sort of acknowledge that where we are today is because of those have come before us and there's so much to learn from them and i don't think that is there so you learn from your coach but that's it even though a lot of the lived experience comes from various people around you
0: well i think in the short term the best thing to do is to make the bcci buy a couple of million copies of the fire burns blue and make every young female cricketer read those books before they get out on the field but thank you very much for coming on the podcast thank you Thank you for listening. There are links to works by my guests in the show notes. Please review this show on Apple Podcasts or on any podcasting platform you have access to. This show is made possible by the people who support us on Patreon. So thank you all to those who do. If you want to hear more Red Inker episodes and you have available funds, please help us out on Patreon, which you can find the link also in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is the producer, he looks after your ears, and the theme tune is called The Prisoners by the Red Crickets.